welcome back, everybody, to Dogman.com Radio. I'm Scott Eklund sitting here with Chris Fetters, and it's time to really talk about some of the history of Husky football. And and before the season started, Chris Fetters and I uh, did a countdown of Husky uh, names to remember, but basically took every position, or I'm sorry, every number, every jersey number, from 99 all the way down to one, we didn't do zero because the first person to ever wear that was uh, Giles Jackson, who did it in the 2021 season. And and so there wasn't really a lot to write about for the zero, but we, we definitely did it 99 through the number one. And, um, you know, when we started this, Chris, I didn't realize how much work I was putting on your and my plate. Did you uh, kind of envision that when I first came up with the idea? No, I mean, to be honest, I I think that we could have we could have certainly made it a lot bigger than we than I think we ended up doing. To be honest, um, we could have really started to track down some of the more obscure guys, um, and I think we had to do a little bit of that just because of how the numbers shaked out and and just historically how there were some numbers that just guys didn't want to wear for whatever reason, um, but. You know, to be honest, I th- I think it was just a an interesting concept that I guess it's it, whose time had come and um, you know rolling it down as a countdown I think made a lot of sense obviously and um, I guess we are going to have to start using zero here uh, starting next year. Yeah, and and I I think the one thing that that I wanted to do was to honor some of those. Guys, that I, I I'm gonna be honest with you, uh, Chris. There were a lot of names in there that I didn't know were part of Husky history, and it's you know I was born in 1971. I really didn't start following the Huskies till I was about five years old. So 1976, 1977 was when I really started to follow the team. And when I say that, it was just the team with the big W where my dad went to school. You know, and and so. I didn't really know the significance of guys like Warren Moon and 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 you know things like that um, until later on in my life when I kind of learned how great some of these players were, and you know w- but going back to some of these guys that played in the 30s and the 20s and some of the histories that they had not just as football players but also in their life after football I thought that was kind of impressive. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, and I'm three years older than you are and um, started going to games in 1975 and um, obviously kind of grew up in the same way that you were in terms of my dad went to UW and, you know, kind of grew up around it in Seattle. Um, So it was just it was just one of those things where, yeah, I mean, you knew a little bit about George Wilson, for instance, or you, you know, you kind of had heard things about Hugh McElhenney or or Bob Sorette or some of these other guys, but, you know, until you really dug in and um, kind of really looked. And uh, of course, Google is a phenomenal tool nowadays for us to get just about (laughs) anything you want. You can just go into a super black hole, uh, depending on how deep you want to go into their histories. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was no doubt. And and to be honest, doing this countdown, um, we owe a huge, did a gratitude to the SID, um, Jeff Pechtold, Brian Tom, all those guys, mm-hmm. um, especially uh, Jeff putting together a page, kind of a, a landing page where, you know, basically we could get all the all the media information 
that was available back then. I mean, we, you know, there's a page where you can get rosters by decade going all the way back to the 1890s, um, which we didn't have to worry about too much because I don't think we, I don't <laughs> think they even had, I don't think they had numbers until maybe the twenties. Yeah. Um, maybe the, te- maybe the teens, but, but more the twenties was when it really started happening. But, you know, there was season by season uh, football statistics going all the way back to 1950. And then there was some even before that, which obviously were very, very limited at the time. And you could even get game by game summaries going all the way back to the, you know, the 18 late 1880s, 1890s. So, um, you know, digging back and, you know, trying to get, you know, somewhat accurate statistics for a for a, an end in the 1960s would have been near impossible without uh, the information that you could get online and the information that the, that Jeff and those guys compiled. So um, a real tip of the hat to those guys, because that was a that was a big part in helping us kind of fill in a lot of the blanks. Chris, you mentioned that you started going to games in 1975. I started going in 1978. So that's right about the same. We're about the same age when we started going to games and everything like that. So, uh, you know, talk about some of your first early Husky heroes, you know, guys that you remember watching and and loving to watch. Um, For me, it was Paul Scanzi, Spider Gaines and, um, you know, Jacques Robinson. Those were kind of the three guys that I just always just just gravitated to when I when I watched Husky sports what was it for you that really stuck out a couple guys yeah well obviously even though I was I started to go in 75 I mean I I my father tells me that you know I I would maybe last a quarter and then I would go crazy (laughs) and want to go home so um I wouldn't really count the first couple seasons as being like anything that I would really actually remember that much of but I do certainly remember the 77 season. I went to the 78 Rose Bowl. Um, that was an incredible season. I, I do remember Warren Moon pretty specifically, especially in the, the Southern Cal game, doing kind of the the bobbing and weaving 60, 70-yard touchdown where it looked like he went to sideline to sideline like three different times um, before scoring. Um, so he was obviously a very early kind of Husky legend that I – really glommed on to in terms of a guy that I really paid attention to. And obviously was a, was the focal point, but you know, like Michael Jackson playing linebacker, he was just everywhere. And I think the only reason I really, really remember Michael Jackson a lot, a lot is because when, you know, that was when Lou Gellerman was still doing the, the, the color, the play-by-play or the, the studio or not the studio, but the, the stadium PA announcements, you know, it felt like every defensive play was like Michael Jackson on the tack. <laughs> um, so I, you know, obviously I remember a lot of, of Michael Jackson. Um, and then obviously, you know, from that moment going forward, you know, Joe Steele was another guy, obviously, because he carried the ball a lot. Um, and I, and I had found out that he was kind of a local kid. So that was obviously intriguing and, um, fun to think about a guy that, that, I could have been in his shoes going to high school and then maybe going to Washington to play football. So um, those are just a few of the names that I think really stood out really, really early on in the, in the mid to late set, more like late seventies when I, when I started really starting to pay attention. Yeah. And then when, when you got into college, that was in the late eighties and uh, you were in college. I was at, I was actually at the university of Washington for a nice little run. I was there 
from uh, 1990 uh, through 1994. And so I was there for a lot of really good football on Washington's on Washington's behalf. I was at several of the games. I was at the Nebraska home game, um, you know, when when Tommy Smith comes around and gets the safety on the Nebraska quarterback first night game, they bring in, uh, what was it? Temporary lights just to put on the, on the rafters. And that kind of set up things that Washington would be able to have night games. And maybe that was the precursor to what we see now where everybody's ticked off if they have seven thirty kickoffs. But, you know, I, I, I can remember some of those games. Can you get, give me, and there was another, I, I was there for the, all I saw was purple game. I was there for that game. I I was in the stands all season long for the 1991 season. 1992 season was unbelievable. That was what they didn't even have stat trackers back in those days. So uh, there was a little thing on the scoreboard that would keep track of um, uh, of rushing yards. They didn't have passing yards. It was just rushing yards, and it was always a contest from the student section to see how long it would take the other team to get. Uh, to get positive rushing yards. And I remember Kansas State was at minus 31 one game all the way into the fourth quarter. And then when they put the backups in, they ended up getting like 39 yards rushing on that. And they ended up with like one or two yards rushing on the day. But uh, Chris, can you give me maybe a game or two that you can remember out of out of your early childhood or even in, into college? When And I know you, were, you didn't go to University of Washington. You went to Whitman um, or not Whitman. You went yep. to oh you went to Whitman. Sorry about that. Yep. I get, I always get Whitworth and Whitman confused. I don't know why, but that. Uh, so you went to Whitman. So, but you did go to games when you were in college, correct? Um, I didn't really go to any oh, okay. games when I was actually going to school per se. But uh-huh. um, I I did live in Walla Walla for a number of years after uh, I graduated from Whitman. And and so for instance, I graduated actually. I was I was on the five year plan. So I. Graduated in 91 in the championship year, but the following year, I actually did make it to the Nebraska game and made it kind of a full weekend. And and I came up with my girlfriend at the time and um, we, (laughs) this is almost awkward to say, but uh, I I think our relationship ended not too long after that, because I think she saw what I was really like in times during football games, like during that Nebraska game. And I'm not sure that I maybe gave the best impression of like (laughs) what life with me would be like if I decided, you know, she decided to want to be with me for, for a long time. So, um, that was kind of an interesting weekend, uh, but it didn't take away from the game. Obviously the game itself was phenomenal. And of course, you know, everyone's screaming their heads off and, you know, making it as, as loud of an atmosphere as possible. And, And obviously it was a very historic game, but even going back to when I was in high school, um, you know, I always remember, um, and you went to Bainbridge High School. I did. I did. No, and and no. before that, I was living in Seattle, um, lived in a number of different places in Seattle. We, you know, she, we lived on houseboats. We did. We did all. We had the full Seattle housing experience. And um, the one thing I do remember, though, is I we always um, ripped out the guest guessers from the Seattle Times yeah, and yeah. always filled those out. And that was, that was fun. Uh, my dad and I, we always did the guest guess. I miss that. I miss that so much. Yeah. That was always a fun deal. I don't, I don't ever remember winning anything ever. <laughs> Me either. Yeah. So that was, I think uh, the closest I got was I got like 10 right out of, I don't know how many there were like 12 or 13, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and, and, you know, high school was really interesting. And obviously, you know, you know, coming from Bainbridge, you know, you had to, 
make a real day of it. And that was, you know, always interesting. But, you know, the the thing was is that I, I remember kind of back-to-back seasons. Like, obviously, 84 was a big season. I was yep. in high school at the time. And, and that was obviously one that really kind of remembered a lot. I, I certainly remember the 83 game against Michigan where that was where Steve Pleur, um brought them back in the fourth quarter and they won on the two point conversion. That was obviously a big memory, but I also remember even a little earlier than that, like in 81, um, the USC game where the weather was so miserable. And that was the one where they, where they still had kind of the muff rule and the kickoff was live. And that was the one where they had, um, they had kicked a field goal, if I remember correctly, to tie or either go ahead. And that's when they kicked off. And Fred Small actually recovered the ball in the end zone for a touchdown. And I think Washington won 13 to 3. But the weather was as ridiculous as I think I'd ever remembered it being in Husky Stadium. And that was like a, an all timer. I do remember at the time reading about it a little bit later. Um, once I, because I didn't know about a lot of the, the, journalists and writers outside of seattle at the time um but i do remember reading a a quip by the the late jim murray who was writing for the la times and he had been up there because he was covering usc i guess at the time and he wrote that uh the weather was so bad that there was even there were white caps in the toilets yeah yeah i remember that so i I, that was that 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 is such a great line by the way it was great it was like yeah it was that's how bad it was and and so i I remember that game and then i also remember the game the following season when they played against texas tech and gabe rivera who for some reason He's always kind of been imprinted in my mind. I get Coach Hopkins would call it a brain tattoo. He's this this guy was like, and maybe he's always going to be, but at that point he was the best defensive player I think I had ever seen play against Washington, or at least the most memorable one. Uh, and that game was an absolute defensive slugfest. I think Washington won ten to seven or ten to three, something like that. And it was just back and forth and back and forth. And and I remember he had like five or six sacks or something. I mean, he had just some ridiculous, ridiculous. Yeah. But he just couldn't, he couldn't get, he couldn't be blocked. He just, no one could block him. And so those were just a couple of the, the memories that I remember from yeah. kind of early ish childhood, high school going into college. And, and then, um, later on, um, the leap at the lake, Ugh. I was actually yeah. there for that. Even though I was still living in Walla Walla, I had met up with a friend, whose wife had actually worked at Whitman for a time. And then they had moved to Seattle and I had still kind of kept up with them and kept contact. And, um, I got an extra ticket. And so I invited, I invited him. His name was Jeremy and we had, he was living up on Capitol Hill. And so basically we just took the bus down from Capitol Hill to Husky stadium and then took the, the bus back to his house. And I remember that game so vividly because that play itself, I don't know if I've still experienced more emotion in one single play in my life, going from like excitement to anticipation to exhilaration to absolute heartbreak in like five seconds. Mm-hmm. And um, and then going on the bus back up the hill with Jeremy and, and he was just, you know, just talking nonstop about how amazing it was. And he didn't have a dog in the fight, literally, don't, no pun intended. Yeah. 
he, he, you know, he didn't, he, he wasn't a Washington fan, but he was a fan of college football. And, and I just remember being so depressed and I just didn't want to hear anything about it because <laughs> it was just such a crazy, crazy play and such a, such a deflating end to what ended up being quite a, quite a game. Well, I, I remember the UCLA 1990 game, and and for those who were maybe too young back then that are listening to this podcast, Washington had a national championship, or at least a bid to get into a national championship, in their in their grasp in 1990. And what was UCLA? They were like five and three or something, or uh, actually they might have even been right around 500. You know, like four and four or something like that. Whatever they were. And Washington yeah, certainly comes, weren't ranked. No, they weren't ranked. And that was with Tommy Maddox was the quarterback. I remember Bucktooth Tommy could not stand that guy. And um, he ends up they, they end up making just some ridiculous plays, some great catches by his receivers. He makes a couple unbelievable throws. And Washington is down by like I want to say they were down by like 12 or 13 points and Mark Brunel comes down, throws a touchdown to everybody starts. So we're in the student section. We're walking out. Everybody's just, it's over. There's only like three minutes left or four minutes left. And uh, Mark Brunel throws a pass that just kind of throws it up for grabs. Mario Bailey catches it about the 10 yard line, goes in for a touchdown. And my buddy and I, that was with me, you know, him, Chris. And um, he and I were, were students at the same time or roommates at the time. We, we were walking up and the t- and we turned around just as the that as he was starting to drop back and we watched the play just in case and he throws a touchdown so we sneak in and we sneak back into a different set of seats and are like okay let's see what happens so then they they kick off and I can't remember if there was a turnover or whatever but Washington gets the ball back and there's like I don't know like a minute and a half two minutes left and there's some people I'm sure who will remind me how bad my memory is right now but I'm just going off of what I remember and the guy uh, and Mark Brunel drops back Washington drives down to about I want to say down to about the 40 yard line 30 yard line they need a touchdown to win it and they they can't tie it uh with a field goal or anything so they have to have have a touchdown here and Washington uh and he throws it and he throws it into triple coverage on the other side of the field I think it was Orlando McKay had beaten his guy, but he throws it to Mario Bailey and it's and it's uh, intercepted. And basically that cost Washington the chance uh, to play for a national title in the Rose Bowl, who they ended up they ended up going to the Rose Bowl that year and, and hammering uh, Iowa in that game in the 1991 Rose Bowl. And but it kind of set up the hunger that they had for that. 1991 season and um and and for as good as that 1990 team was and they were really really good the 1991 team is still the greatest husky team that's ever played um you know there there, there's some argument that 1960 or 1984 teams were were better teams maybe overall but um no no team in in washington history has gone has, has won a national title except for that one and and uh you know, I don't, no team has got what they were 12 and 0 that year, correct? Not 13 and 0 because they didn't play 12 yeah. games back then. They were 12 and 0 back then. And I mean, they could not be denied in that season in any game, even that Cal game. That was, I, I remember, I, I think I had um, bloody fingertips the rest of the, because I bit my nails down to the nubs <laughs> during that game. 
And uh, what's been really cool is having Walter Bailey on um, our predictions. So I've gotten to know Walter a little bit, and he and I have been talking several times. We've talked several times about that cow game and that last play that he has where he undercuts. I can't remember the receiver's name. It was their best receiver, Sean was it Dawkins. Sounds about yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's who it was too. Anyway, he throw the he undercuts the route and the guy ends up dropping it. But um, you know, if he doesn't, if that guy doesn't drop it, that's a touchdown and they they tie the game. And or maybe I know they win the game, I think. So um whatever it was that they did. I mean, so that's what's been really cool about this job at dogman.com is just getting to know some of these players and they can tell me some of the stories behind these games. And, and what was going through their heads and what was going on. But, uh, yeah, some fun memories. Hey, Chris, uh, we're going to take a break here. And we, when we get back, we'll talk about – we'll just kind of give an overview of the countdown and uh, kind of just uh, talk about some of the some of the numbers that really stuck out to us. Uh, we're not going to talk about a lot of the guys. That's going to be for uh, our next podcast, part two of this podcast. But um, we're going to we're going to talk just a little bit about some of the things that stuck out to us and uh, and and maybe a few more things that uh, we can add as well. Thanks for listening. Uh, stay tuned and we'll be right back here on Dogman Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back to Dogman Radio, and we're talking about the season countdown articles that Chris Fetters and myself, I'm Scott Eklund, we did uh, before the start of the season. Uh, Chris is joining me, and Chris, um, you know, one of the things when we were talking about possibly doing this podcast and everything, one of the things I, I that kind of just stuck out to me, and I didn't know how to word it uh, right, but um, can you just give me an idea of some of the the toughest numbers that, that you worked with um, maybe that, that were either too many or too few guys. Um, we don't have to go through those numbers quite yet. Cause I want to do that in our next podcast, but just some of the toughest numbers that you've had or some, some of the toughest. So for those who haven't read everything, Chris did all of the odd numbered uh, tens. So he did the nineties, seventies, fifties, thirties, and teens. And I did all the even ones, which were the 80s, 60s, 40s, 20s, and uh, single digits. So, um, Chris, just give me give me a couple couple things that kind of stood out to you for either numbers that had too many guys or numbers who didn't have enough. Well, I think as as you as people probably would imagine, it was super super easy from like the 30s on down. Yeah, because of the just the skill guys and the most they're the most visible guys. Um, obviously, the 80s with some receivers is is probably a, a visible group as well. Um, I, I think I just I feel like I kind of screwed you a little bit because you got <laughs> the 60s and the 40s. And, you know, just looking back on the list before doing this podcast, I just I didn't realize just how kind of bare, you know, both of those groups would be. But again, it, it just kind of stands up to to common sense i suppose and you know the hardest part 
was just dealing with the the linemen, for instance, especially the the offensive linemen, because the defensive linemen, they're going to have stats. You can kind of piece together yeah. some things. But really, outside of starts for offensive linemen, there's not too much to talk about unless they were, you know, like an all-league or an all-American. Or they were on a great team that had great offensive numbers. Right. Or you could – exactly. Or there was another storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe they, they went on and did something, you know, big either in the NFL or did something big outside of football. Um, you know, a guy like a Rick Redmond, for instance, he would have been a guy that, you know, he wore 66, but he's a guy that went on to do big things, not just on the football field, but outside the field as well. So, you know, they're just some of those guys too, like Norm Dix, you know, 63, who is a 63 that you're going to think about? Yeah. Jeff Taze is probably the most notable guy, but really Norm Dix, Jeff Taze and Clay Walker were the only ones that we ever really came up with. But Norm Dix has a very storied career outside of the football arena that, you know, is worth talking about. So, um, like I said, I feel like giving you the 60s and 40s, I gave you kind of the short straw, um, especially with the 40s, because, you know, really. Well, the 80s weren't easy either. I mean, there was only maybe a couple tight ends in each, you know, in some of those too. But yeah, yeah. And I was going to say the '40s. It just really feels like it was the purview of, um, you know, it's just the, um, you know, just like fullbacks and maybe linebackers a little bit. Um, but you know, it's just mm-hmm. there just wasn't a lot going on. Yeah, I had a few kickers in there <laughs> in the 40s. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, Chris, you mentioned, um, I mean, I remember talking to you as we were getting closer and closer to the start of the season. And and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do about the number one, because it could be a 5,000 word article, because <laughs> there's so many great players that have worn that number. And we'll talk about those players uh, tomorrow in tomorrow's podcast. But, man, I just... I was like, who am I going to cut out? I can't cut out guys. And one of the things that people need to know is there are a lot of guys who contributed that we didn't even really write about that much because we had to save space and save some time. And also, you know, that there's a certain length of an article that after you get past it, people don't read because of the attention span of people. Or you could say, you know, they only have five minutes to read and scan stuff. So they don't get the time. So we kind of decided not necessarily as a hard and fast rule, but that we would take any All-Americans and any pro players, those almost automatically made it into each article. Yeah, and and to be honest, and then obviously the ones where the numbers are retired, you know, you've got 44, who was Roland Kirkby. Yep. You've got 33, George Wilson. And then two, which has kind of been unretired a little bit, but Chuck Carroll was the one that was reason it was retired. And then Aaron Williams and Cason Williams kind of brought it back. And now, obviously, Kyler Gordon is wearing it. And I'm sure Aaron Fuller wore it. Right. Aaron Fuller. Aaron Fuller. Yeah. But, you know, that will continue to to happen. The one thing that I was kind of interested in understanding was kind of this recent trend of of having multiple numbers. Like, you know, Hunter Bryant started with 19 and then moved to one as soon as one became available. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Chico McClatcher with 13 and six, Andre Bocelli with, with 19 and five. Um, you know, that is a really recent phenomenon. Cause if you go back, 
that just never happened. Um, the only one that I found that happened more than like 10 years ago, for instance, was Joe Toledo. And the only reason he did that was because he got big and, and wasn't a tight end anymore. And so he, he moved. Could, yeah. Yeah. He was yeah. a tackle and you couldn't, you couldn't wear 83 as a tackle. So he had to change his number. So really, I think the, the idea of changing numbers, um, is certainly like a really recent thing. It's not something that, and I don't know if that was just something where the coaches were like, you got your number, you're sticking with it. We're not messing with it. Um, or that's something that just guys maybe just asked recently. And, and, and maybe that just wasn't something you did back in the day. I don't know, but, um, I was kind of surprised going back. I kind of would have assumed there was going to be, uh, more guys that had changed numbers maybe over the years, but nah, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think I felt the same way too. I thought maybe like a Rick Fenny, one of, one of the early running backs I remember for the university of Washington. Um, you know, I thought he might've changed numbers. I, I thought, you know, what was funny was, um, I, as great as Michael Jackson was at the University of Washington, the, the the first team that I ever remember really ever watching from a football standpoint was the Seattle Seahawks. And um, I remember him as 55 for the Seattle Seahawks. So right. when, when I wrote up the article, I didn't even bother looking at his, you know, what number he wore for the Washington Huskies. And I actually, I accidentally left him off of the fives i mean the greatest tackler in husky history i mean the guy had like almost 600 tackles in four seasons and i mean it was just ridiculous the amount of tackles that he puts up and i left him off the list and someone's like how did he not make the list and i i had it in my head he was 55 not five right so and so i was like oh we had already dealt with it but then i was like wait a second i was the one doing the you know, you know, you were the one doing it. So I was like, did he do no? Oh my gosh. I left it off. So I ended up writing it up real quick, but I, I mean that guy, I, and I don't know if you remember this, Chris, um, there was a moment in the early eighties after he had been drafted by the university or by the Seattle Seahawks. Um, he gets really angry in, in a game goes over and punches a Seattle bench and knocks it over like uh, the whole bench. Yeah. And I remember thinking that guy is absolutely nuts. And then I found out the guy's from Pasco. He's from, he went to the university. I didn't even know he went to the university of Washington, Chris. I didn't even know. I know really? that sounds silly, but I didn't know that. Well, and then but he somebody, was right before he was yeah. right before, right. Literally when you yeah. were starting to watch when I was starting. So, yeah. um, so when somebody said, yeah, he's a local product from the university of Washington. And then that's when I started looking him up. But again, totally forgot that he had worn the number five. That is an underrated number, by the way. And we'll talk about that tomorrow when we get into our second podcast. But number five, as good as number one was, and I don't think you could say there was a more loaded number group than number one. But number five is right there, too. And um, there are a lot of really good players that wore the number five at the University of Washington. What was... Um, maybe something that you, when you doing your research and you only did the even numbers, like we mentioned, eighties, sixties, forties, twenties, uh, or I'm sorry, you, I'm the, sorry. You did the odds, nineties, seventies, fifties, thirties, and teens. What would, can you maybe give one or two things that you found out that you didn't know 
when, when you were when you were going through this and and uh, guys that maybe popped up that you were like, I didn't even know that he was a part of this program. Well, I was going to say, first of all, your your recollection of Michael Jackson would have been my recollection of Spider Gaines. OK, because I remember Spider Gaines, you know, when he was in the Rose Bowl and stuff in that season. But if you would have told me that he was also the guy that made the catch in the 75 Apple Cup to win yep. the game like that miraculous one where it gets tipped and then he's on the other side of it and catches it and goes. I in. still don't understand how I, that. Happened. I guarantee you, I was at that game. I don't have the foggiest. I don't have the first recollection of any of that stuff happening. And so, well, and you watched that, and it that that play defies the laws of physics, seemingly. Yeah, I mean, and, it's just and, it's insanity. And and also ninety three. Mm-hmm. What receiver wears ninety three? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, literally, I think it was like at that time of, of, of the, uh, you know, in a program where it was just like they give you a number and it's like you don't even think twice about it. It's like, OK, that's the number they've given me. So I'm going to yep. go run with it. Um, I, That just 93. What, yeah. I mean, and that was and that was kind of a weird thing, too, is that there were a lot of guys that wore some really odd numbers playing in their positions. It's like. Okay, um, Jim Mora wearing 96. You're a defensive yeah. back. What are you yep. doing? I know. What, 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 in what world does that make sense? So, yeah, I just I thought that those were some some really interesting ones too. And I mean, in terms of ones that really stood out, I you know I'd really have to rack my brain and yeah. go back because it actually is about how many months is it since we did this? A few uh, months. Yeah, yeah, a couple so, months. Yeah, so I, I don't know if there's any ones that were like so off the charts remarkable that they like they made a, a permanent imprint on me. But I mean, there there's certainly some guys that it was fun to go back and kind of just remember how amazing they were. Like Dennis Brown, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was there at the time when I was in college, so I didn't really get to see him up close and personal like I would have wanted to, but you know, for him to do what he did was, was really incredible. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of some other guys that just, that stood out too, that, that maybe I had to go back and really, Mm -hmm. um, think about because there's so many guys that were all Americans in the sixties and seventies that I didn't really, you know, know anything about. Um, what, there, so, well, uh, you know, I remember, um, and this is another former Seahawk that it was a shock to me when I found out that he was a uh, former Husky, and that was Blair Bush. You okay. know, he come, he goes to, he goes to, I think he was drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers, maybe I can't remember off the top of my head, but he comes over when Chuck Knox takes over at uh, with the Seahawks in 1983. And uh, ends up helping them to their first playoffs, you know, and and being that guy. And then you find out later as, a, you know, once again, I was in 1983, I was 12 years old. So I don't know. Um, I I didn't know. You know, he, he played 50, uh, 75 to um, 1975, 76, 77. Those were his years lettering. So he probably enrolled in, in either 73 or 74. And um you know, it's just some of those just that catch you off guard. One of the big ones that caught me off guard, and I don't know why I don't know. I vaguely remember somebody mentioning it to me, but I think it went in one ear and out the other, kind of like um, 
you know, when I when I would be in physics class <laughs> and and it would go in one ear and out the other, I had no idea that Don Coriel was yeah. a former Husky. Yeah. And he is widely regarded as one of the two or three guys that was an offensive innovator in the NFL that eventually has evolved into the offenses we see on the college football gridiron today and in a lot of NFL offenses today. No, it's true. It's true. And I guess the other thing that I would say about, you know, just kind of researching some of these guys and, and maybe they were really good football players for the Huskies, but then all of a sudden you maybe find out the other aspects to what they were doing during their time at Washington. And, I'm thinking specifically of like academics and, mm-hmm. you know, for, for instance, people will, will walk around the West side of Husky stadium now and they'll see that Jim Houston boardroom. Well, who's Jim Houston? Well, yep. Jim Houston also happened to be the very, very first academic all American at Washington in 1955. And that's just one of those things that you learn by, you know, if you weren't, if you didn't grow up with it and you didn't remember him, that's just something that you had to, to learn by researching. But, you know, you look at some of these other guys that you may have thought were a really good player, but, you know, like Steve Bramwell. Steve Bramwell was a phenomenal returner for Washington during his days, you know, when he was in the in the 60s, mid-60s. But Steve Bramwell also ended up becoming Washington, the Washington team doctor. You know, yep, so, just, yep. so just stories like that that I think are interesting to talk about. You know, you look at a guy like Bruce Harrell, you know, at the late 70s. I kind of remember him a little bit playing linebacker, but not. I don't remember him being like an all world type guy, but now all of a sudden you find out he's running for mayor, you know, it's just little yeah. stuff like that. Dave, you know, guys that were academic all Americans that, you know, guys like uh, Chuck Nelson, Hugh Millen, David Rill, Ed Cunningham, um, you know, just some of those guys back in the day when it was like, Oh, I remember you playing. I, I didn't realize you were like smart too. You know, so <laughs> yeah. it's like, you, yeah. you could have been you could have been going to the same school I was going to because you guys were academic All-Americans. So um, that that was also kind of an interesting sidelight that I thought was kind of a, a cool part of researching what these guys were about, not just as football players, but obviously to help kind of round out some of their bios. All right, Chris. Hey, we're going to we're going to get off, get, get done with this. This podcast is kind of the precursor to the meat of things, which will come tomorrow. Tomorrow's podcast where we talk about some of the individual numbers and maybe go into some of the stories of the players as we as we just kind of relate and, and talk about Husky history, something that maybe a lot of people don't know about. And honestly, I had to learn about as I did a lot of this research. So uh, thanks for joining us. Tune in tomorrow for part two of this podcast where we really delve into a lot of the names, a lot of the numbers uh, that stuck out to us. Thanks for listening. For Chris Fetters, I'm Scott Eklund, and you're listening to Dogman Radio. Radio.